Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we talk with Mark Williams, Chair of Political Studies at Vancouver Island University. He is the author and editor of The Politics of the Asia Pacific, Triumphs, Challenges, and Threats, published by the University of Toronto Press, and previously authored a book on the politics of Indonesia titled Indonesia, Islam, and the International Political Economy, Clash or Cooperation. Says Mark, my road to China is through this broader prism of the politics of the Asia-Pacific. We discuss the main thesis of his book, The Politics of the Asia-Pacific, and discuss the biggest evolutions in the APEC region over the last 15 years. Mark also maps out the relationships between the APEC countries, as well as the major non-governmental actors in the region. Mark talks to us about how the local average citizen views the recent tensions and how COVID has impacted APEC politics in general so far. Enjoy. Russia looks out across its region and sees vassals and enemies. I think that there's a certain truth to this with respect to China as well, where they look upon this region and they see vassals like Cambodia and they see they see rivals. And so this is a region that has this uncertain future because of this difficulty in finding that shared purpose. And there's also this concern about any countries having bilateral relations with such a preponderant power. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. All right. As we usually do, we'd love an introduction into yourself and how you came to be involved in an expert in China and tell us a little bit about your path to China and your area of expertise. Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Williams, and I'm a chair of political studies at Vancouver Island University. I completed my PhD in political science at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario in 2013, and I've been at EIU ever since. I'm the editor of a recent book by the University of Toronto Press called The Politics of the Asia-Pacific Triumphs, Challenges, and Threats. Before that, I authored a book on the politics of Indonesia called Indonesia, Islam, and the International Political Economy, Clash or Cooperation. and I also wrote a book that was published on mixed martial arts. I've published scholarly chapters and edited books on the politics of Indonesia, and I've published on a range of different issues pertaining to international political economy and international security in journals such as International Journal, the Journal of Political Science Education, the International Journal of Canadian Studies, and a few others. So my road to China, it really 
is through this broader prism of the politics of the Asia Pacific. Back when I was an, an undergrad 20 years ago, the world was rocked by the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And so I was very, very much a student of trying to figure out the context of this global war on terror and these questions of American foreign policy in the Middle East. And eventually my attention really came to Indonesia and Southeast Asia and just how remarkable this young democracy really looked. It's the largest Muslim majority country in the world, the fourth largest country overall, third largest democracy in the world. And what really struck me is that here you had this this country that had a had 200 million plus Muslims within it creating in the aftermath of three decades of authoritarian rule, a, a, a young democracy that was really trying to come together over a, a dark period, just if just around the end of that authoritarian dictator, dictatorship the, during the Suharto years, you had these this incredible violence that played out in East Timor, for instance, where the Indonesian military was really carrying out something that looked a lot like ethnic cleansing against the people of East Timor, Timor-Leste. And from this, from this, this brutal military action going on in East Timor, democracy really began to consolidate in some powerful and meaningful ways. And so one of the things that I started to really look at more carefully during my undergrad and my master's and eventually into my PhD was just how this politics all really played out in Indonesia over the, so since the late 1990s. And it's from this study on Indonesia where I really started to look at Indonesia's foreign relations more broadly with the rules-based international order, institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the United Nations and the World Bank. But what I found is that you couldn't really study Indonesia for too long without really looking at the broader region, without starting to look at the Asia Pacific in this, this bigger way. And by doing so, you're going to really delve into the politics of China and the effects of China on the broader politics of the Asia Pacific. So that was really my, my road to studying China and studying the Asia Pacific more broadly. Yeah, that's amazing. The amount of research and the amount of writing and publishing that you've done uh, is really incredible. And now that my inferiority complex has been properly fired up, uh, let's dive into the politics of Asia Pacific. I'd, I'd like to start with, you know, asking you really broadly, what is the main thesis of that book? It's a kind of a unique book in that sense, because I'm the editor of this book and I really put it together to be this aid for classrooms that are dedicated to the teaching of the politics of the Asia Pacific. And so I was really reluctant to push too strong of a central thesis because what I was trying to accomplish in this book is to introduce people and students in particular 
to the politics of the region and to appreciate the diversity and the complexity of these issues facing this vast region on the planet. And by including a number of different contributors who have some differing views on what things like the rise of China means for the region or the prospects for the advance of democracy, I wasn't going to have too strong a central thesis beyond this general point on how the world is going to be a better place having people with a realistic understanding of the politics of the Asia Pacific, its triumphs, its challenges, and its threats. And so my real, it was more of a a goal-centered book project than a a central argument book project, because the goal was really to try to put together a really good classroom aid for the instruction on the politics of Asia, one that is is pretty encompassing as well. So it opens up with the consideration of the history of the region, really trying to appreciate some of the, the legacies of colonialism. And then it moves into a discussion on the economy. And this is where a lot of attention is fixated on the Asia Pacific because of just the absolutely unprecedented economic growth that the region experiences in the post-World War II order. Back in 1993, in this World Bank publication called The East Asian Miracle, it said that if it was random chance, there, the economic success of the Asia Pacific would have had about a one in 10,000 chance of occurring. <laughs> of course, it's because it's not random, but it's rather through uh, a design through elected officials, public officials working with government bureaucracies and trying to work with the heads of major industries to coordinate what is called sometimes a developmental state model for the region where government is trying to channel investment into specific industries to try to find and maximize comparative advantages rather than just leave it entirely to market forces. So there's an examination of the economics of the region, certainly one of the more bigger triumphs that's to be found. And then it moves into a discussion as well on democratization and authoritarianism. And in this section, these chapters really challenge this Western bias where we tend to think about there being an arc of history where democracy is on the advance and that authoritarianism is what we refer to in uh, in French as the ancient regime, right? This ancient regime of the past. Whereas for the Asia Pacific, we've really seen some important advances to democratization. But on the other hand, it really still does seem to be a powerful bastion of authoritarianism. So it doesn't look like there's an arc to history. If anything, it shows us that there's been some cycles to authoritarianism and democratization, where in the 1940s and 50s, in the first half of the 60s, a lot of countries had begun to democratize in some impressive ways, only to see authoritarian regimes settle in and freeze politics for decades. Another big section of the book is on security. And so looking at the security dynamics involving the rise of China as well as elsewhere in the region and really appreciating 
just how violent the Cold War period was for Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. Certainly, it looks like it was the, the most violent region on the planet for the Cold War. And there's another section, too, that tries to look into global and regional governance and to what extent the rules-based international order is going to be strengthened by a rise of China or largely undermined. And then the, the final section of the book, one that makes it kind of unique, is that it includes these active learning seminars where students are going to, they're going to be presented with a United Nations emergency session involving a crisis escalating in North Korea, where North Korea and the United States approach this major standoff. And so students participate in a model United Nations experience to try to de-escalate the crisis. Another one looks at the women's movement in the region, and then there's a third active learning sequence that has them participate in an association of Southeast Asian nations summit during a, a second Asian financial crisis. <laughs> so that was really the approach of the, the book is to try to have a goal of having a, a well-rounded introduction and survey on the politics of the Asia Pacific. But this meant that the, I wasn't going to try to approach it with a, a central argument that's going to powerfully link the different chapters together. Could you perhaps summarize some of the biggest evolutions that you've seen throughout the entire region over the past 10 to 15 years? Sure thing. 2,400 years ago, this one Athenian soldier, Thucydides, put together his history of the Peloponnesian War, this massive confrontation between Athens and Sparta in the classical Greek world. It was a war that dragged on for decades and really consumed much of the Hellenic world. And there's all different causes for why the war became so impossible to, to end. It didn't end until Athens was under siege and dying from plague. And then the, the regime is basically destroyed and a Spartan puppet regime is installed in Athens for a time. But so there's all these different causes that Thucydides acknowledges. But in one part of the Peloponnesian War, he offers this really succinct and compelling explanation for it. And he says that the cause of the war was the rise of Athenian power and the fear it created in Sparta. And a number of scholars of international relations within political science, they really take note of that line. And what they've suggested is that in history, there is a Thucydides trap. And this is an acknowledgement of how challenging it is for a ruling power to find a way to accommodate and find shared purpose with a rapidly rising power. There's only a handful of examples of this throughout all of history. And this is really the concern right now for the Asia Pacific and for the rules-based international system more broadly is whether or not the region of the Asia Pacific and 
a superpower on the other side of the Pacific can find this shared purpose with each other. China's transformation and growth is just absolutely astounding. In 1960, China's GDP, and this is during the Great Leap Forward, so truly, truly bleak time for Chinese society, but their GDP compared to the United States was 11%. We think about it today, it's around 85%. If you adjust for purchasing price parity, the Chinese economy could be as high as 25% greater than that of the US economy. If looking forward, the Chinese economy will probably be equal to that of the American economy, maybe as early as 2028. By 2050, not that long ago, not that far into the future, I should say, the Chinese economy will probably be about 150% the size of the United States. This is just an unprecedented transformation and redistribution of power in the international system. World order is a, a nebulous concept that's influenced by a number of different factors, such as questions about to what extent is world order seen as legitimate by states or by the broader public. But certainly one pillar of world order really is nestled on this distribution of power in the international system. And that distribution of power has shifted just so incredibly. Another fascinating point to consider is leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic, 40% of all economic growth in the world was concentrated in China. <laughs> it's just astounding to think that almost half of all of the world's economic growth was happening in, in China in particular. And the implications of this rise and this transformation for the region and for world order more broadly is one of these, these big questions that I really think that society needs to, to think about and to, to read about and, and debate and, and try to really find a way forward. So I think that's, that's ultimately the concern that, that a number of China scholars and, and scholars of the Asia Pacific have is the stakes are of the highest magnitude that the region and the rest of the world really needs to find a way to find shared purpose with China. The, the failure to do so is just almost unthinkable. Agreed. And that, you know, is part and parcel of why this podcast exists, is that we are also aiming to achieve that same goal. How would you... How would you characterize the relationships, if, if I could ask you to kind of paint this picture, connect these dots, how would you characterize the relationships between all the countries in that region? It's an interesting region, too, because it has a, a thin degree of institutionalization. And by, by a thin degree of institutionalization, what I mean to say is that in international organizations, you have this delicate balance between the supreme sovereign authority of states, that states get to decide what happens in their own realm. That's not for international organizations to impose themselves on. But within international organizations, you do have these norms and these rules, procedures, and institutions 
that result in a pooling of sovereignty. And so states are going to really try to come together through these formal pathways of diplomacy to mutually adjust to each other. And so what international organizations really tend to do is to create a degree of forbearance on each other. So by forbearance, I mean it poses some restraints. So in order to maintain a rules-based international order, states are going to be careful at times or thoughtful about just how vigorously they're going to pursue their national interests. And they'll be pulled back by some of these norms and rules about how they should interact with each other. And so the European Union is the, the leading international organization for the pooling of sovereignty, where countries have pooled their sovereignty so much that they even forego monetary policy, right? Instead, they defer to a European central bank, for instance. But in the 1990s, the Clinton administration was hoping to transform APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Grouping, to a different kind of APEC that would have been known as the Asia-Pacific Economic Community. And this is something that didn't actually happen. It was largely vetoed by China. They weren't prepared to accept a new kind of APEC that wouldn't be about just cooperation, but a, a community, because they were really concerned about the extent to which this international organization could really place limits on the sovereign authority of each individual state, particularly, of course, the thinking about limits placed on their own sovereign authority. And APEC didn't actually really become this community as hoped for by the Clinton administration. Instead, the major organization for the region continues to be the Association of Southeast Asian Nations and the, the broader groupings that are connected to ASEAN. So with ASEAN, you have these 10 major powers in Southeast Asia that come together in the late 1960s over a game of golf. <laughs> and it's just this incredibly informal setting for this declaration where the countries of Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines and Thailand, they get together and they commit to this attempt to really recognize each other and to agree to try to work together economically, to build up this economic interdependence with each other. And it's really quite radical for its time, because in the 1960s, there was just so much interregional hostility going on here. Indonesia under Sukarno, for instance, had this foreign policy that he described himself as living dangerously, where it was a foreign policy called confrontasi, right? So that means confrontation. There's confrontation with Malaya as it's trying to achieve its independence with Malaysia, confrontation with Singapore. And you ha also had during this time period the second Indochina war, known as the Vietnam War. And so you've got this, this brutal war going on in peninsular Southeast Asia. And Vietnam, at least uh, Hanoi, the North Vietnamese government, is continuously also threatening neighboring countries, Thailand in particular. 
And as the, the Vietnam War starts to reach it, its apocalyptic ending, ASEAN began having these discussions about whether they should really bring the rest of Southeast Asia into the, the, the association. So some countries, it's an easy choice, like Brunei, when it finally gets its independence in the 1980s, very wealthy Brunei is an easy choice to be brought into ASEAN. But to what extent should countries like Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos also be included? Thailand and Singapore were really reluctant to bring Vietnam within ASEAN, but it was Indonesia that really wanted to push it. And they were persuasive with the other ASEAN members because this really was a way for conditions to be put on Vietnam to expel the Soviet presence from Hanoi, to really get the, the Soviet uh, experts and advisors out of Vietnam as a condition to join. And so what ASEAN was trying to do, and what's really core to its mandate, is to have Southeast Asia as a region that's going to be free from direct control of great powers, that they couldn't just have these, these dependencies within the region. They couldn't have these huge military bases. And the other point that Indonesia was making that was particularly resonant for Thailand and Singapore is that it meant bringing in the country with the greatest amount of tension with China into the association. And so Vietnam had invaded Cambodia, for instance, when the Khmer Rouge, Khmer Rouge regime was in power during this horrible uh, genocide that was going on there. Vietnam had this brutal war with Cambodia. It's really quite incredible. The number of Vietnamese who died in that war with Cambodia was just about the same number of Americans, for instance, who were killed fighting in the Vietnam War. Vietnam is only forced to withdraw when China, in fact, invades Vietnam. And so what they wanted to do here was to expel the Soviet Union, but also to really try to strengthen the region to prevent China from having any kind of hegemonic influence there. And so within ASEAN, you have these 10 Southeast Asian nations they get together to try to strengthen regional stability, but also to really put some, some unified pressure against great powers, such as the Soviet Union, but also very much with China as well. And there's been a number of successes with ASEAN in a bunch of different realms. But here's an example of how the rules-based international order of ASEAN is a little bit different from a lot of other international organizations. One area of success has been in cybersecurity. So ASEAN has been really, really effective at coming to uh, consensus on the importance of having these protections in this realm, especially for, for private business in a way that the European Union hasn't been able to achieve. So the European Union, this international organization that basically has this high degree of sovereignty being pooled together, they can't get to the same consensus. And one of the reasons for it is because in the area of cybersecurity, there is a public core 
of the internet that's recognized by Western liberal democracies as needing to be protected. So there's, there's a place for the internet that exists within civil society that's very much connected to civil liberties, that we should be able to engage with the internet on our terms, right? Like doing, you know, or something as simple as a Google search. For a lot of these countries within ASEAN, that commitment to a public core of the internet isn't necessarily as strong. And so they're able to achieve some agreements on cybersecurity protocols and measures because they don't see there being limits to the sovereign authority of states within the cyber realm, that states should feel free and open to, to really restrict the flow of information through cyberspace in a way that they see as serving the national interest. And whereas for Western liberal democracies, that's more of a, of a difficult question, so difficult that it really stops a number of agreements on cybersecurity from being drafted. So you have this real challenge to what we, can, we used to think about with the rules-based international order, where there was this balance between states being sovereign, but also there would be limits placed on how states would pursue their national interests, that there would be this forbearance. The politics of the Asia-Pacific, even in the case where you have this large regional organization, which through the ASEAN plus three includes Japan, South Korea, and China, uh, as well as an ASEAN plus six, which adds Australia, New Zealand, and India to the grouping, you, you have a a stronger commitment to protecting and recognizing sovereignty of states and less of a commitment to the idea that states need to pool their sovereignty together and, and really come together in a more deeply institutionalized manner. And so this is one of the characteristics of the Asia Pacific that is really maybe going to be one of the defining issues for world order in the 21st century whether we are going to see international organizations lose a, a lot of the strength that they had during the previous 30 years. And I am going to jump in on some of the political temperature in the region and some of the characters and, and how they are feeling about the political nature of the region but I want to ask one question, and I know I don't think this is saying anything surprising to anybody that there tends to be a lot of government control in the region. But who are the major non-governmental actors in the region and what sort of power do they wield there? That was one of the questions that I had getting into this project as well. I was really interested in what are some of the most powerful civil society organizations at work in, in China, for instance. And what I found is that what may be the largest civil society organization is actually a women's rights group called the All China Women's Federation. And it's it's not even clearly a non-governmental organization, though. It has its roots within the centers of power within the Chinese Communist Party, as so many non-governmental organizations do in China's recent history. Um, but it, it sometimes does look, especially in how it, it interacts with other women's rights movements, 
in the region to have some degree of autonomy. And so this is, I think, one of these, these larger cultural debates affecting the politics of the region right now. And it's this real concern that women and girls have been left behind by a, a lot of the politics of the region and left behind even in places where there's been tremendous economic success amongst the the OECD, the Organization Economic Cooperation and Development, basically the, the collection of the most successful liberal democracies in the world. We, when you look at the gender gap in the OECD, so the difference in pay between males and females across different professions, that the worst performing country for the gender gap in the OECD is South Korea. The second worst is Japan. And so there is this burgeoning women's movement that's being felt across the region in democracies like Japan and South Korea, but even, even in China, that with the All-China Women's Federation, that's really shaping the region. It's having such an effect that you're even beginning to see this anti-feminist pushback against the women's rights movement. And that's even happening in these more liberal democratic states, like in South Korea, where you're seeing this opposition movement really try to tap into this anxiety that some young men are feeling about whether or not this, you know, this women's movement is becoming so influential and so vigorous that now they're the ones who are reacting to it, thinking that they're being left behind. So that was that was definitely one really fascinating study that that came from this project and inspired this active learning chapter that encourages students to really learn about one of these women's rights movements in civil society and to be able to represent them at a conference and articulate the challenges that are that women and girls are facing in the country where they operate and how it is that these groups are trying to work within their system to try to create some meaningful change. How do consumers, residents, the average person in the region feel about the political nature or temperature there? Obviously, we have a few different political systems, as you as you mentioned, South Korea versus China, for instance. I'm curious how those different systems are received or being received have been received by the average you know consumer or person who lives in the area right i think that this is another area where the the rise of china does loom pretty large back when the cold war came to an end and a lot of commentators in the west they they really clung to this idea that francis fukuyama had this uh japanese american scholar and wrote a book, first an article, then a book called On the End of History, where he's basically suggesting that liberal democracy is is the end point of political ideology, that the ideological debates about politics have largely been resolved and and liberal democracy will be triumphant. And the longtime president of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, he, in a number of interviews, would really, he pushed back against that idea and he wanted Westerners to tone down that exuberance and said that, well, liberal democracy may not really fit with Asian societies because of the the family structure, 
the more strongly held views about um, community rather than individual rights, and this general deference towards political authority. And for, for, for Lee Kuan Yew, his argument was that in order to achieve developmental success and to have these really strong growth rates, and you know, Lee Kuan Yew knows more about what it takes to achieve strong economic growth than just about any person of the 20th century. <laughs> There's a saying about how back in 1960, Singapore's GDP per capita was one-sixth that of the Soviet Union, whereas today, Singapore's GDP per capita is well over six times that of the Russian Federation. And so Lee Kuan Yew's point was that, that uh, democracy may really be ill-suited to Asian society and to the political structure of Asia. But Lee's co commentaries on this provoked a whole bunch of reactions within the region. And it became known as the Asian values debate, where a number of people within the region said, that's just what supporters of authoritarianism and those who elites who are afraid to let people decide who ought to represent them in government wants you to believe. And that there's nothing about democracy that's going to slow down development or, or hold it back. And they point to a number of Confucian societies like South Korea and as well as Japan that have embraced democracy and, uh, and has really helped society find their political rights and civil liberties protected quite effectively. And this is still unsettled. For instance, Indonesia has become this democracy after being a dictatorship for over 30 years. But it's also been suggested that Indonesians seem to be pretty passionate in support of these democratic reforms, but not necessarily out of reasons grounded in identity of being in a democracy and in associating themselves as as being liberal Democrats, but it's more utilitarian. And so within Indonesia, you have this groundswell of support for democratic reform, but it's utilitarian in the sense that Indonesians are really expecting that this is going to usher in some tremendous benefits for society, especially the, trying to undo the corruption of the Suharto years. Like there were times during the corruption perceptions index where granted only about half the world was surveyed for the extent to which they were corrupt. So it's leaving out huge parts of the world. But there were some years early on with the corruption perceptions index where Indonesia was ranked as the most corrupt country on the planet. <laughs> And so there, there's these hopes that it's going to really get rid of that, that it's going to help Indonesia move forward, advance economically, and really clean it up. That belief that, that sunlight is the best disinfectant for corruption, and it's only through democratic reform where that kind of sunlight can, be, can shine brightly on the sources of corruption within government. And so this Asian values debate really seems to persists. And even places where democracy may seem to have consolidated, not necessarily advancing right now. I don't think democracy is advancing beyond where it is right now in Indonesia, but it's, it's consolidated to a certain extent. 
but it's really more from this utilitarian perspective of there being a belief that this is going to make things better for Indonesian society. It's going to help out the economy, for instance. How has COVID, and we always have to kind of talk about COVID right now because it's it's extremely impactful. How has the COVID pandemic affected the politics of the region, if at all? I think that the COVID-19 pandemic does show us both some of the triumphs of the Asia Pacific, as well as the challenges and threats. I think that the biggest triumph is just how effective a number of these countries were in in uh, shutting COVID down and uh, accepting things like mass mandates and various restrictions. I mean, the the number of deaths and and incidents of COVID per one hundred thousand in Singapore and South Korea and in Taiwan is just a fraction of what we saw in so many other countries. New Zealand, for instance, is one of the countries of the OECD that had a particularly impressive response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And and even uh, compared to New Zealand, Taiwan and Singapore had a, a fraction of incidents. And so that really just shows this technocratic governance that can be so incredibly effective and it's able to be effective in these societies that have been more resistant to polarization than in so much of the rest of the world. So there's this sense that we've got to defer to political authority on an issue like public health. And I think a lot of this does come from these hard lessons that were learned from the SARS outbreak and of 2002, 2003. You know, sometimes it's jokingly said that the United States of America should better be understood as the United States of amnesia because of how quickly important lessons are forgotten by Washington. And you can't really make that same joke about the the politics of the Asia Pacific. A lot of these governments really seem to internalize these lessons as they did after SARS. I think that, and another example would be the success of China's no COVID or zero COVID policy, where the number of deaths, at least that have been reported in China, are just a, from COVID are just a few thousand, right? despite the, the virus having its origins in China. So there's some been triumphs, but there's also challenges and real threats that COVID shows us as well. So I think that it's kind of a mix of these triumphs and challenges that really come to light when thinking about COVID-19 in the region. If we look at APAC, we see roughly 2 billion consumers, a pretty fragmented geopolitical system, and quite varied political and economic systems in general. How do you see the region evolving over those areas over the next 10 to 15 years? And does this fragmented, decentralized type of situation that we've painted out, does it matter in your opinion? 70 years ago, the American diplomat George Cannon, who is the diplomat that um, basically created the foundations for U.S. grand strategy of containment during the Cold War, he, he once said that Russia looks out across its region and sees vassals and enemies. And 
I think that there's a certain truth to this with respect to China as well, where they look upon this region and they see vassals like Cambodia and to an extent Laos and Myanmar, and they see they see rivals. And so this is a region that has this uncertain future because of this, this difficulty in finding that shared purpose. And there's also this concern about any countries having bilateral relations with such a preponderant power. Canada, I think, has really experienced this so much in their own Canadian foreign policy due to the presence of the United States. Pierre Trudeau famously commented on relations with the United States as being like you're in bed with an elephant where you feel every shift. And so Canada's approach to dealing with the United States was really to support a rules-based international order that was going to be multilateral, that would help Canada have this special relationship with Washington, but also to really try to interact with the United States with a concert of other countries that have these similar concerns about American power and to try to work diplomatically and in concert to to help encourage the United States to practice a modicum of restraint or forbearance. And I think that this is really going to be the approach to working with China, that every country in the region really needs to be careful about its bilateral relations. It needs to look for these multilateral relationships where possible. And that's not easy to do. There is some potential for ASEAN to do this, especially for some countries like Canada, that's actually a dialogue partner of ASEAN. And so ASEAN represents these 10 countries and we have the other six that I've mentioned, but it also includes a handful of other countries, just uh, Canada being one of them. So as a dialogue partner, Canada can try to work with ASEAN as well as these other dialogue partners and try to find this shared purpose with China in a way where it's you're not going to be subject to every every push and turn of uh, of this preponderant power in the region and instead they can really try to work with other countries such as Japan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand and the United States and Indonesia a whole bunch of other countries that are looking to help see a stable Asia-Pacific and one that's going to be prosperous. Your book was somewhat uniquely put together in that you're not the only author involved. So just bringing this conversation and interview home, could you maybe share a little bit about how you collaborated and worked together with with more than just yourself on putting this book together? Right. I had been teaching the politics of the Asia-Pacific as a course at Vancouver Island University for a few years uh, off and on. And I had never really been able to find a, a single book that covers everything, all the different themes that I would want to for the region. And I felt it's because such a book wasn't really out there. And a big part of why that is, is because for those of us who teach on the politics of the Asia Pacific, um, we don't necessarily, we're not, we're experts on one or a few countries, or we have expertise on an issue or theme, 
but we don't necessarily have this really encompassing expertise on every country in the region and all these different possible issues and themes. And so what I really wanted to do was try to reach out to a, a range of different people and former diplomats, scholars, both retired as well as, as at an earlier stage in their career, other emerging voices, such as people in law school, and try to really bring the different um, expertise that people have together in a, a single um, a single volume that I didn't think that I'd be able to do on my own. And I think would be really hard for just about anyone to, to bring together on their own. And so it was really meant to, to bring this different expertise together and try to find a home for it in a, a single book. Well, speaking of that book, where can people get a copy? Well, you can either order it directly from the University of Toronto Press's website or you can find it on Amazon, uh, as well as uh, chapters online, and uh, you, can, you can order from there. Excellent. Thank you very much. Mark, last question for you. Do you have one or two other people, individuals, known entities in the universe who you might recommend for me to be able to interview on the Negotiation Podcast that you might also like to listen to? if we were to be able to get them on here. One person who really stands out to me is Philip Calvert. And Phil Calvert wrote the chapter that overviews democratization and authoritarianism in the Asia Pacific. And he's also Canada's former ambassador to Thailand, Cambodia, and Laos. And he was also um, a part of the Canadian... um, negotiations over the decision to support the accession of China to the World Trade Organization. And uh, Phil is a a really, really interesting person who's had this long career in public service. He's retired now, but he's he's also really active in a number of different um, forms, including the Canadian International Council. So he's the one person that really stands out to me. Mark Williams, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure to be able to talk to you, and we can hopefully entice you to come back again another time soon. It was a pleasure. I look forward to that. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.